Now we're diving into a new book uh, today, the book of James, um, and I just want to read a couple of portions of scripture, one from the book of Ephesians, and then just the first book of James to set the context for us, and uh, then we'll go from there. Uh, first Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 uh, to 16, and, and then uh, James chapter 1. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And then uh, just the first verse of James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this book that is before us now as a people. Would you, as you've already prepared the way, now lead us in that way, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we come to a, a new book in the Bible, and some of you might wonder, well, how in the world did we ever pick James? And I don't really know. Uh, it's a process. It's not like I, I, I sit down and, and uh, it just comes to me. It's a process. And so some of you who have attended here for a while know that I try and jump back and forth between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I think we ought to be equipped with the whole counsel of God. And so the whole counsel of God is found from Genesis to Revelation. And so we were just in the book of Genesis, the last uh, number of chapters in the generations of uh, Jacob and uh, the life of Joseph. And so it just made sense that now we would look for a New Testament place to land. As I was thinking about the place to land, I sent out a few feelers and I do that. And if you ever have an idea of a book of the Bible you'd like me to preach on or think that we should think, send it to me. And uh, it just kind of goes in the pot in my head and gets circled around. Anyhow, so I sent out some feelers and I believe every one of the feelers I sent out said, yeah, I think we need to do James. So I thought, okay, well, that sounds like it might be a good book to go to. And then uh, we just did that short little series on God is real, and that changes everything. And I've been wrestling in my head, well, what does everything mean? What does everything look like in our lives as we, as we um, consider that God is real? And it just sort of dropped in my mind that, well, James describes some of the very minute areas of our life in which the reality of God impacts and James is about maturity. It's about a relationship with God. It's about everyday living with God. And in fact, one of the words that James uses is the word perfect. And uh, it, it's not referring to a state where we can reach perfection, but rather it's an action that we are working towards perfection. And so, for instance, in James chapter 1, he basically says, he writes these things so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And so it's a word that means, as they say, mature and complete, not perfect. We're not striving to be sinless this side of heaven. That's our goal, but we'll never achieve it this side of heaven. Sinlessness comes when God will transform our body and make it completely free of sin. But on that journey, 
we are to mature, we're to balance, we're to grow up. And, and so James is a book about growing up. It's a book about maturity. And he, he deals with some of the, just the, the very basic issues of life. One person called it a refresher course on what it means to live the Christian life. I think we need to hear that from time to time because we get boggled down in theology or we get boggled down in living life with our family or in our work and, and we kind of forget the, the real basic necessities of Christian life. And, and so James helps us understand the life and the heart of the Christian believer. Another person had called it an intensely practical manual for Christians. And I think sometimes that's what we're looking for, isn't it? You know, we, we understand the theology or we grasp the big sort of theological concepts, but how does that work itself out in my life? And so James is wanting us to understand that and help us through that. And one of the problems that he is going to see in the church, and, and we'll see it filtered down really from one of the most well-known verses in the book of James, is one of the problems is there's a lot of people who profess faith in Christ, but their actions are not in keeping with their faith that they profess. And so James will very clearly say, and we'll spend time in this text, but in verse 22 of chapter 1, he says, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's a real concern of James, that the faith that we profess is the faith that actually comes out of our hands and our feet and out of our mouths. And he wants us to understand that our faith is to be a living faith. We talk about that from time to time, a, a living faith or a working faith. And James spends a, a lot of time talking about a faith that actually has feet, a faith that actually is comprised of actions. And he will say, so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And right away I can hear some of your minds beginning to say, well, that doesn't sound like what we've talked about a lot in this church before. He says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? <laughs> That's strong language. We like to skip over that when we read James. But do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. We know that from a physical point of view. You take the spirit out of the body and the body's dead. It's the spirit that animates our body. It's the spirit that gives our body life. You take away the spirit and life leaves the body. Well, James is saying in the same way, works animate faith. You take away works and faith is dead. Now, right away, we are, find ourselves, I think, conflicted because we have said, and we will continue to say again and again and again here, that the Bible teaches extravagant grace. Grace that asks nothing of us. Grace that changes anything, and we will say again and again, believe the gospel, come and rest. You don't have to do anything. You can't have to buy it. You don't have to work it, work it out. It is the free gift of God to you. Grace is a free gift of God to us, and we will die on that reality. But the Bible also teaches a radical discipleship, a discipleship that demands everything of us. It's a discipleship that changes everything. Obey Jesus. Come and die. 
And so we ask ourselves, then, well, which is it? Do I have to choose between extravagant grace or radical discipleship? And I think one of the things that the church needs, and you and I as followers of Christ need to find, is how we hold those two things together in our lives and in our Christian living. How do we express the grace of the gospel and walk in the grace of the gospel and, and be profoundly moved and, in, uh, and impacted by the grace of God towards us, which demands nothing from us and gives us all that we need, on the one hand, and then deal with the demand of the gospel, on the other hand, without canceling the two out. There's a book that the elders have been working through, and it's an amazing book, and he deals with what it means to be in Christ. And as we come to it, he talks about a, a tension that's in there, this tension between extravagant grace on the one hand and radical discipleship on the other. And he quotes a, an illustration from John Calvin, where John Calvin talks about light and heat and the sun. And he says, Christ our righteousness is the sun. Justification, it's light. Sanctification, it's heat. The sun is at once the sole source of both such that its light and heat are inseparable. At the same time, only the light illumines, and only the heat warms, not the reverse. Both are always present without one becoming the other. And so as we think about grace and as we think about works, they, they don't become one another. They don't cancel one another. They both flow from Christ. So James, I believe, is one that is more pointing us to the heat of the gospel while never diminishing the grace of the gospel. And you say, well, how so? How does James do that? Well, if you know um, uh, what an imperative is, an imperative is an action word. Uh, an imperative word is a word that tells other people what to do. And um, from a ratio perspective, James by far has more imperatives than any other book in the Bible. In other words, you, you can actually go to, I think it's James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, and there's 10 imperatives in those few verses, w words that tell us what to do. And so James is not a book of suggestions. James is a book of commands. And so we think, okay, well, how does this work then in my life? How, how do I balance the grace of God that I've received and the grace of God by which I stand and the grace of God which will carry me home and yet the demands of discipleship which are reiterated to us, for instance, in James through these commands. One of the things that we'll also find about James is not only that is he full of imperatives, 54 by my count and by others' counts, but James is a a man that is soaked in Jesus. He, more than any other New Testament writer, is influenced by the words of Jesus. They've, they've just kind of come into every pore of his being. And he doesn't really quote it, and he, but what he does is he weaves what Jesus has taught into the things that he says. And so you can find uh, commentators, and I've got some, that will point that all the allusions that James makes to the teaching of Christ. He's not saying anything new. He's reiterating the words of Jesus. So James is a book about um, doing, and it's a book that is infused with Christ. Why do we like James? 
I think if you asked a lot of Christians, you know, what, what kind of books do you like in the Bible? A lot of them would say, well, I like James. Well, one part, James is like uh, the Old Testament book of Proverbs. James has got short, pithy uh, kinds of things, memorable sayings that he gives to us. He, he uses metaphors and pictures that, you know, you, you look in a mirror or a horse with a bridle or the tongue is like a fire um, or, or businessmen who are arrogant. And, and, and he, do, he talks about all these sorts of things in pictures and we can identify readily with it. It's also practical. We, we look in sometimes just for practical help in life. And James is really going to be very practical for us. And so it's a favorite book of I think the church, just because of its readability and its colorfulness and its practicality. So let's, I just want to open it up and get us started in the book of James. Give us some big picture things to think about as we head into the next number of weeks in the book of James. Make a few comments of uh, the first verse and then uh, some general applications for us. So first things first, James. Which James? The word James, or the name James is used 40 times, or 42 times in the New Testament, and it refers to at least four different individuals. The particular James that wrote James knew Palestine very well. He knew the weather patterns. He knew about the farming tactics. He knew about the Jewish diasporia. He was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, and he knew his audience were well acquainted with the scriptures. He assumes they have a knowledge of Abraham, of Rahab, of the prophets, of Job, and of Elijah. And so, which James could have written the Bible, or the, 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 the book that we're looking at? Well, for me, and I'm not going to give you all of them, I'll, I'll just tell you, I believe it's James, the brother of Jesus. Jude there talks about James being his brother, and Jude was a brother of Jesus. None other than the son of Joseph and Mary, therefore the half-brother of Jesus. Paul, in Galatians 1.19, calls him James, the brother of our Lord. While some wish to preserve the notion of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is just a doctrine that's not helpful at all, suggest that James was really the older brother of Jesus through a first marriage that Joseph had before he met Mary. Because after he met Mary, he never had sexual relations with her. So her virginity was perpetual until she died. It's Catholic dogma, which I don't find anywhere in the scripture. Rather... James was Mary's firstborn son after she had sexual relations with Joseph. Matthew records these words about those who rejected Jesus in Nazareth in his hometown. He says, is not this the carpenter's son referring to Jesus? And is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas here? Mark adds a little bit more. He says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Josie and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him so Jesus also had sisters we don't know any of the names of his sisters but he had sisters and he had brothers at least four of them the fact that James is listed first in Mark and in Matthew suggests that he was the oldest of the siblings next to Jesus I don't know what you think what would it have been like to be a sibling of Jesus right that would have been brutal. Like, do you ever have a fight with Jesus? You know, like, you ever go to your mom and tattle on him and say, he took my toy? It would have been bizarre. But they grew up in the same home. And it seems that the family didn't get him. 
Because there's a point at which John says that not even his brothers believed in him. In fact, so strong was their unbelief that they thought that Jesus has taken leave, had taken leave of his senses in a certain spots. But there was a transformation that took place, and it, it seems like the resurrection of Jesus was the catalyst for that transformation. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul begins by recording various appearances of Jesus to groups of people and then individuals. And Paul specifically mentions in verse 7 how Jesus appeared to James. And then after Jesus ascended into heaven, 40 days after he was raised from the dead, there was a prayer meeting that took place in Jerusalem. 120 people were gathered there. And among them were the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Clearly there has been a transformation in their hearts where they have come to believe that Jesus was not only their earthly brother, but he was in fact God. Paul mentions that sometime after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. The only other person he saw is James, the brother of Jesus, he says in Galatians 1.19 again. And most likely because James had by that time become the leader of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. He had risen to prominence. Finally, James died probably um, in about 62, a martyr's death, the events of those. You can go online and find out uh, the suggested ways that he died and why he died. It seems pretty clear, though, that he died at the hands of religious leaders. And so, again, I believe the James that wrote the book of James is the brother of Jesus, or the half-brother of Jesus. He calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James is written in, in impeccable Greek. They're sort of everyday language Greek, or, you know, some of us write in English, and, you know, we write pretty good English, but then there's those that can write articles, and, you know, they, can, they, can, they know the nuances of grammar and of language, and they write beautifully. Well, that same thing happens in other languages, and the Greek of James is really good Greek. And so the very first line there says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it could equally mean a servant of Jesus Christ who is God and the Lord. A clear statement about the deity of Christ, which James had come to understand that his brother was not only his physical brother, but he was in fact Christ. But there's no English translation that actually translates it that way. But I'm sure that James was smart enough to know that that could be the way that this statement was taken. James refers to himself, and it's better that we understand the word slave, not servant. But some say, well, if James, the brother of Jesus, wrote this book, why didn't he just say, James, the brother of Jesus, slave of God? In other words, getting traction on the fact that he was Jesus' brother, therefore you ought to listen to him. I think it probably, there's a lot of reasons why, but I think one of the main reasons is James says, you know, my physical relationship with Jesus is not what matters. He says it's my spiritual relationship and my faith that the realization that, yes, he was human, but he was God. And I think that's one of the reasons there's no reference in the letter to James playing off his personal relationship with Jesus and his earthly relation. He calls himself a slave of God. The, the word is doulos. It's a very specific word that means slave. It depicts a person who is deprived of all personal freedom, totally under the control of their master. Absolute obedience and loyalty to his master was required of every slave 
So James says he had become a slave of God and of Jesus Christ through new birth. With that designation, James is putting himself in a long list of slaves of God, but he's also putting himself in the list of every single man and woman who is a Christian. We are slaves of God and of Jesus Christ. I think many of us would prefer the designation servant. I like servant, like I can wrap my head around servant. In North America, we really don't have a grasp of slave, but we have some negative connotations with slaves and slavery. But you go to other parts of the world where slavery is still something that's very prominent. And that's the last thing in the world that you would ever want to be called is a slave. It's a designation even in James' culture that really wasn't sought after because slaves were considered as no better than animals in many cases. And the practice of slavery might have been demeaning socially, but it was honorable spiritually. Let me ask a question. When is the last time you thought of yourself as a slave of God? I am a slave of God. Oh, we like friend of God. Yeah, I'm a friend of God. We like son and daughter of God. You know, that's nice and cozy and lots of hugs and warmth and relationship, which is true. But when is the last time you ever thought of yourself as a slave of God? I, Paul, a slave of God and of Christ Jesus. William Barclay who has written a little commentary series, and his strength is really the social culture of the early church. It says four things about being a slave or a doulos of God. It says, to call the Christian a slave of God means that they are inalienably possessed by God. In the ancient world, the master possessed his slaves in the same sense as he possessed his tools. A servant can change his master, but a slave cannot. So the Christian is inalienably, or inalienably belongs to God. Secondly, he says, the, to call a Christian a slave of God means that they are unqualifiedly at the disposal of God. And again, in the ancient world, the master could do what he liked with his slave. He has the same power over his slave as he has over his inanimate possessions. He had the power of life and death over his slave. The Christian belongs to God for God to send him where he will to do with him as he will. The Christian is one who has no rights of their own, for all their rights are surrendered to God. Thirdly, he says, to call the Christian the slave of God means that the Christian owes unquestionable, unquestioning obedience to God. You can just see why we don't like the word slave. Uh, I like friend better. I can take advice, but I don't like to be told what to do. Ancient law was such that a master commands, commands was a slave's only law. Even if the slave was told to do something which actually broke the law, he could not protest. For as far as he was concerned, his master's command was the law. And so too with us in any situation, the Christian has but one question to ask. Lord, what will you have me to do? The command of God is our only law. And then fourthly, to call the Christian a slave of God means that they must be constantly in the service of God. In the ancient world, the slave had literally no time of his own, no holidays, no time off, no working hours, settled by agreement, no leisure. All his time belonged to the master. So again, James' self-title of slave to God and Christ Jesus is not his alone. 
But to all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, we are slaves of God. I don't know, take, take that one and think about it a little bit this week and ask yourself the implications of that for your life. And then he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The audience of James is really difficult to nail down. There are no names. Um, I'm writing to you or you. There are no places given as a designation. It's always easier when we have those kinds of things. Uh, when, we, when we say a letter, this is to the Ephesian, Ephesians or the saints in Ephesus. Well, we know, okay, that's in Ephesus. So we can dive in and we can learn about Ephesus and understand a bit of the culture and the pressures there. Or if it's a letter to Laodicea, well, we can read up about Laodicea and we can understand some of the culture there. Uh, you know, we're, this is to um, Edmontonians or this is to Torontonians or, you know, there's cultures well, there's nothing mentioned here except the 12 tribes and the dispersions. That's a lot of people in a lot of places. How can James be writing to all of them? These are people scattered all over the world. Well, can we be any more precise? Well, in one sense, we know that the 12 tribes of Israel were the 12 sons of Jacob. Exodus chapter 1 tells us the 12 boys. And from those 12 patriarchs come the people of Israel. The dispersion re refers to at least two events, some say three, but one, the 10 tribes of Israel um, were taken captive by the king of Assyria in 722, and they were taken away from the land of Israel, and they have never come back. You can hear stuff today about the lost tribes of Israel, the 10 lost tribes of Israel. They were scattered, and they still are scattered around the world. Back about 580, um, Nebuchadnezzar came, the Babylonians came, and they went after Judah, the last two tribes. And they took the people and they brought them to Babylon. And at the end of the captivity, 70 years, some of them went back to, to Jerusalem, but the rest of them, some of them stayed, or the others were just scattered all around the world. So that's called the dispersion, when the Jewish people were dispersed around the world. The third one some people talk about is um, just before the fall of Jerusalem through the Romans. But they were scattered all over the world. But as we come to the New Testament in the time of James, the people of Israel had long since become the Jews now. And James is, it seems, writing to Christians. It seems that James is referring to the whole 12 tribes of the dispersion, all of them away from home and dispersed in the world. For example, Jesus chooses 12 apostles who at the end of this age will sit on 12 thrones ruling the tribes of Israel. And you think, well, that's kind of bizarre. Well, in doing this, what he was doing, he was, he was not creating a new Israel, but rather he is leading the Israel of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, into its full intended reality of Israel of the New Covenant, the people of God, the apostolic people of Jesus Christ, who Paul calls now the Israel of God in the book of Galatians. So in a word then, Israel is the name of all of the people of Jesus, and it's the true inalienable church. Because Paul will teach, and you can go to the book of Galatians, Paul teaches that every Christian is a child of Abraham. And that Abraham is our father. And that everyone who has put their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation are Abraham's children, again, the Israel of God. And so Peter then, and following this through Peter in 1 Peter, writes to the elect who are exiles in the dispersion. And how does he describe the elect? who are exiles in dispersion. Well, they're defined as elect, but they're sanctified by the spirit of obedience to Christ. So they are God's people, and they are exiles in the world. They are God's Israel. So James now 
is using a perfect word to describe the church, I believe. Now, I'm not going to say that, that he's not referring only to, to Jewish Christians. He may be. I think it's a broader term than that because uh, when I think of the 12 tribes that are described in Revelation chapter 12, the 144,000, 12 from each tribe, I believe that what that is referring to is the perfect church. That is the church in all its wholeness and all its completeness because just after John um, outlines 12 tribes with 12,000 each, then he turns around and what does he see? He sees a number that nobody can count that numbers more than the sands of the sea. So I think that the 12 tribes that are mentioned in Revelation 7 are, are a picture or a representation of the true, complete church of God. And if that's the case, then every single one of us as believers now today, we are scattered in this world, are we not? Like, we're scattered all over Oceanside. We're, we're scattered all over Nanaimo, some over Duncan, some over Port Alberni, some up to Bowser, some up to Courtney. We're scattered all over. This is not our home. We're, we're waiting for our eternal home, the new heaven and the new earth, but right now we're not at home. We're exiles here on earth. This is a place of exile. And so James, I believe, yes, he could be writing specifically to Jewish Christians, but I think he has in mind the whole church the new Israel of God, who are scattered around the world until the day Jesus comes back again. And so we're on a pilgrim path. We're the Lord's people dispersed in a menacing and testing world. We're not yet home. We're going to feel life's pressures, its temptations, its insidious pull on our lives, ever wanting us to conform to its standards. We, too, are people that will be sometimes tested with profession versus living out our faith. We are God's people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, scattered and not yet home. And it's us that James writes. So why write? Why is James writing? I already hinted at the very beginning. He's writing because he wants to see us mature. I was struck by this beginning of the book by Warren Worsby on James, where he talks about spiritual maturity being one of the greatest needs of the church today. And then he says this, too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. I thought, wow. I could never say that to us. <laughs> but his point it was very true, that you know, the church can be a mile wide and an inch deep. And James is reflecting on some of the problems that he reflects on. We, we see them in children, don't we? For, for example, impatience with difficulties. You get a three or a four-year-old and you get them building something and three minutes into building it, they can't figure it out and they go crazy and they smash it all up or they throw it down or they, you know, they, they throw a temper tantrum. Talking but not living the truth. No control of their tongue. You know, an inability to be careful with their language. Fighting and coveting. We see this in kids, don't we, all the time. Like, That's part of what we train out of them. They're not taught to fight. They just do it. And so as parents, we teach them that as they mature and as they grow up, there's other ways to solve their issues. And why are they fighting in the first place? And what's going on in their heart that's driving them to do that? And so maturity leads them away from fighting and away from coveting. Collecting material toys, that's my stuff. These are my things. 
And so God is looking for maturity in us as his children. He wants us to, to grow up as, as children of God, to become well-rounded, to have a vital living faith that's characterized by steadfastness and endurance. And so we're going to look at these over the next couple, number of weeks, the, the ways in which the Spirit of God will transform us. So three now general things, things to keep in your mind as, as we go through James that, that I, I think will help us. Um, the first one is soak in Jesus. Soak in Jesus. James, again, as I said, illustrates for us what a life looks like that is soaked in the atmosphere of the words and the teaching of Jesus. We marinate things, don't we? Why do we marinate things? We, we marinate things so that their flavor will spread through the whole um, piece of meat, per, say it's a steak. I've even got this thing that sucks all the air out of the little can so that it makes the pores of the meat or whatever it is bigger so that the marinade gets even deeper into the meat and you get the flavor through it all. Well, James, I think we can learn from James that the benefit of marinating in Jesus. And so maybe alongside the book of James, which I've told us takes 20 minutes to read. You can read it once a week. Just soak in the book of James. But maybe alongside the book of James, pick a gospel and read the gospel. Maybe Matthew, because that's the one James refers to most often. But pick something about Jesus and just keep reading it and soak in Jesus. Marinate in Jesus. And, and that will begin to transform us as we get him into the very center of who we are. Secondly, we'll find as we go through the book of James, this, this reality, which we've talked about a lot here. Jesus is coming back. And the fact that Jesus is coming back should change everything about us. Our whole approach to this life, the, the way we deal with things, the way we endure things, the way we accumulate things or don't accumulate things, all of that is impacted by our, our confidence and our belief and our hope in the promise that Jesus is coming back. It, it changes our perspective on any, everything. And James is going to, uh, in a number of ways, um, move us to consider that this life is not all there is. That when we die, that's not the end of things. That Jesus is coming again. That, that, that we will give an account for our lives. Uh, he talks in verse 1, uh, or verse 12 of uh, chapter 1 in James, of, of re receiving the crown of life. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test... That's at the end of his life or the end of this age. The crown of life will be given by God to those who love him. We're forever part of the kingdom of God. One day God will exalt the humble. The day of judgment is at hand. Flip over to James chapter 5 and let's start at verse 7 there. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Well, we'll dive into that text, but you see what he's saying? He says the Lord's coming back. So that should influence the way that we handle stuff as we wait for that day. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives its earth early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. It's nearer today than it was yesterday. The nearness of the return of Christ is, is, is dominating the landscape of this last age. It is at hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you might not be judged. Well, why? Because the judge is standing at the door. 
You see how it, eschatology, the return of Christ, the end of this age, shapes our present living. And so James will weave this throughout his book for us, and it's something that we can immediately begin to do if we're not already doing it. Maybe stick something in your car dash, stick something in your study. The Lord's coming is near. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Remind yourself, remind ourselves that this world is coming to an end, and it will shape our behavior. So we ought to live in the light of return of Jesus. And then the final one is life because God is real. I, I couldn't describe this any other way other than to say that God gives context to our lives. James wants us to understand this, that God determines the contours of our life. I'm still amazed, more so as I come to understand actually who God is and his power and his might, that I can have a relationship with him. It blows me away. I was just fellowshipping with God yesterday. I had a wonderful time with God just on my own. But it blows me away that the God who made this universe the sun, the stars, the moon, put them into space. The God who made Vancouver Island and all the trees on it, all the animals in it, everything on it, everything around it, everything under it. The God who cares for them, provides for them. The God who has this whole world in his hands, who knows the ins and outs of everything that's coming and going. That he invites me into a relationship with him. It blows me away. And so James defines some of the contours of that where he says there's only one God. We need to under, grasp that, just even that one fact. There's only one God. Why do we run after all these other gods? It could be a sin in our life that dominates, and it's our idol. It could be money. It could be recreation. It could be any number of things. James says there's only one God, and that God has given us laws, one lawgiver. And one day we'll give an account before him. God's ways, God's word, frames our life. And James, that's what James wants us to understand. But not only that, as I've already said, we can have a personal relationship with him. So much so that James describes when we leave off loving God, it's an adulteress leaving off. He uses language that is really harsh. He says, you adulterous people. Why are they adulterous? Because they've left off loving God for loving the world. And the things of the world have become their love. The things of the world have occupied their time and their attention and their loves. And James says, you can't have both. You can't have a wife and a mistress. You, you, you can't have that. He says, if you, if you love the world, you're an enemy of God. And so he describes our relationship with him in, in one of the most intimate forms of relationships that we know. We're invited to draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. Isn't that profound? Like, God's not hiding. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So that's woven through the fabric of James. And the final one is prayer. We can ask God for wisdom. In fact, every good gift comes to us from the Father. Everything. It's the echo of Jesus' words where it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which one of you, if he, son, if he has a son and asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a servant, serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? 
Time and time and time again, James encourages us to pray. This is not a cold, distant relationship. This is an intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father that frames and shapes and guides and directs our life and our maturity. So over the next weeks, soak in Jesus. Apart from James, just soak in Jesus. Remind yourself as often as you can, in any way you can, that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And allow that again to shape and to frame your living. And thirdly, realize that God has invited us, drawn us into, called us to be part of this incredibly intimate relationship with him that matters. Allow that to frame and to shape the living out of your faith so that it is more than a profession, but that you too can become a doer of the word and not only a hearer of the word. Father, would you help us as we endeavor even this week to wrap our heads around what it means to be your slave? Oh, it can be offensive, but it need not be. In some ways, there's no better thing in the world that we could be than to be a slave of yours. I pray that you'll help us to understand, though, some of the implications of that for our lives. And I thank you that we have an elder brother, Jesus, who has shown us the way to you, his truth and life. Help us to learn from him. Help us to live in light of his return. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land and to bask in the wonderful privilege of having a relationship with you, Father. Amazing. We can call you Father. Lord, I know that even today there are some here who think, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. Or some who are saying, I'd love that, but I don't know how to do that. Father, would you have put them beside somebody this morning who might just ask them a question about their faith, or they might turn to them and say, can you tell me more about this Jesus person? And maybe today, somebody will leave darkness and enter light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.